Few things are more fleeting than historical fame. But Whitaker Chambers after his case transformed American history. And Chambers' great book Witness, his autobiography, was a bestseller in 1952, the year of its publication. And that book changed my life. In that year, I was a college undergraduate, your age, and everybody knew about Chambers and his. I had a friend who was given to making bad jokes. We had a classmate whose name was Whitaker. So my friend one day asked him if he would name his dormitory room Whitaker's Chambers. Everyone got the point immediately. So before I continue, let me ask how many of you know who Whitaker Chambers and Algae is were. Don't hesitate to be honest about it, because I'm sure most of you do not know them. If you don't, you should. Maybe after hearing me tonight, you will know and remember something about me. Let me say at the outset, I consider Whitaker Chambers' book Witness to be the greatest book written in the 20th century, which encompassed all of his short life. He was born in 1901 and died in 1961. So he was a child of what I have called the accursed century and he understood better than any other man of that century whom I have read just what his evils were and why they were. So let me, let me ask now, how many of you know who Whitaker Chambers and Alan Pierce were? Okay, that's good, one. Chambers' book Witness was published in the year before my graduation from college and helped to make me a Christian because it describes Chambers' conversion to Christianity which enabled him to break with communism. Chambers joined, with the, joined the Communist Party in New York while he was enrolled at Columbia University exactly 30 years before I was enrolled there, studying for my PhD. There at Columbia in the summer of 1955, I read Witness for the first time. I hated everything about Columbia, and being there helped me to understand what had happened to Chambers there 30 years before. The atmosphere at Columbia was so inhuman that I used to say that if a student died in his cheerless, lonely, single room, we had no roommates, that no one would know it until it began to smell. <laughs> Why are Chambers and the man he exposed, Alger Hiss, so important? Because at that moment in American history, in the 1950s, uh, when we first engaged communism in a shooting war in Korea, he revealed that communism was our supreme enemy and showed us why. He was able to do this because he had been a communist secret agent and actually joined the Communist Party at Columbia in 1925 and volunteered for his underground spy work. He knew firsthand how deeply it had penetrated the Roosevelt administration because he'd done that penetration and even tried fruitlessly to warn the Roosevelt administration. As I pointed out last month, Stalin had actually admitted to Roosevelt in one of their meetings that his liquidation of the Kulaks had taken 10 million lives. But Roosevelt was not impressed, but continued to deal with Stalin as a trustworthy ally, scoffing at all reports of the truth about him, including the information from Chambers. You can only understand how this was possible if you realize how much most people go by first impressions of others. Chambers made a very bad first impression. He was fat, unkempt, and had very bad teeth. Hiss, on the other hand, was suave, slim, elegant, and handsome, with a bright smile, 
a veritable poster boy for the Roosevelt administration. He came, his came highly recommended by Justice Free, Felix Frankfurter, whom Roosevelt had appointed to the Supreme Court. His had been a clerk for former Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., one of the most evil men in American history, despite the fact that one admiring biographer called him the Yankee from Olympus. Holmes once said he could see no difference between, quote, a man, a baboon, and a grain of sand, end quote, and said that state laws requiring sterilization of the retarded were constitutional because, quote, three generations of idiots are enough, end quote. As far as we know, he's agreed with these sentiments. But in an age far less sensitive than ours to anti-life ideas, they were not held against him any more than they were held against Holmes. Nothing seemed to matter but his sophistication. After Chambers exposed him with irrefutable evidence, many simply would not believe his was guilty. One reviewer or witness actually dismissed this magnificent memoir as, quote, the longest work of fiction of the year, end quote. The future Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, memorably said, I will not turn my back on Algiers. An echo of this dismissive attitude remains in the demonization of Senator Joe McCarthy, who made the exposure of communism in government his crusade, his crusade, and who was subject the subject of an earlier lecture of mine here. In view of the reception his revelations received, it's not surprising the Chambers believed to the day of his death in 1961 that the communists were going to win the world. Even the Christian faith he acquired as he rejected communism did not give him hope that God would never allow this to happen. I should add here that Chambers did not become a Catholic, but a Quaker, so he did not know that God had promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. But his new faith did keep him from killing himself, as his brother Richard had done, as he was tempted to do, along with his devotion to his wife Esther whom he met as a communist, and to whom he dedicated a witness with the imperishable tribute, quote, infinitely loving and infinitely beloved, end quote. She gave him several children. At the end of this lecture, we will read his extraordinary letter to his children, which is in the introduction to the witness. To appreciate this book, you have to imagine what it was like for a man who had known and participated in the greatest evil of the 20th century to reject it and to try to expose it, only to be met with a wall of indifference. At the beginning of Witness, in his very first sentence, he says starkly, quote, in 1937, I began, like Lazarus, the impossible return. I began to break away from communism and to climb from deep within its underground where for six years I had been buried back into the world of free men, end quote. The surpassingly dramatic story of that break and that climb back into the world of free men is the story of witness. As a recent alumnus of this college, whom you knew as Casey Dufresne, has said, this story proves that a man can return from anything. It's very like the story I told you right here several months ago of Georges-Jacques Danton, who came back from the hell of the French Revolution through repentance and faith, guided by the love and prayers of his second wife, Louise Jolie. Chambers, like Danton, 
proves that God never gives up on any soul. You may remember from my speech on Lenin two months ago, Lenin's startling and unexpected reference in one of his last speeches to how bad icons were, which suggests that God, in the last effort to save him, had been putting into his mind the images of the chief symbol of holiness for the Russian church. Now, now the shadow of communism has been lifted from the world, though it still controls China and Cuba, and even there, but even there no longer seeks world revolution. Now that the shadow has been lifted, we can appreciate what we owe this man who did so much to lift that shadow. So let us listen to him as he describes that shadow as only he can. Quote, there is one experience which most sincere ex-communists share, whether or not they go only part way to the end of the question it poses. The daughter of a former German diplomat in Moscow was trying to explain to me why her father, as an enlightened modern man, had been extremely pro-communist. Her father uh, had been extremely pro-communist, but he had become an implacable anti-communist. It was hard for her because as an enlightened modern girl, she shared the communist vision without being a communist. But she loved her father, and the irrationality of his defection embarrassed her. He was immensely pro-Soviet, she said, and then, you will laugh at me, but you must not laugh at my father. And then, one night in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. Simply one night, he heard screams. A child of reason in the 20th century, she knew there was a logic of the mind. She did not know that the soul has a logic more compelling than the mind. She did not know at all that she had swept away the logic of the mind, the logic of history, the logic of politics, the myth of the 20th century, with five annihilating words. One night he heard screams. What communist has not heard these screams, those screams? They come from husbands torn forever from their wives in midnight arrests. They come muffled from the execution cellars of the secret police, from the torture chambers of the Lubyanka, a notorious prison of the secret police in Moscow, from all the citadels of terror now stretching from Berlin to Canton. They come from those freight cars loaded with men, women, and children, enemies of the communist state, locked in, packed in, on remote sidings to freeze to death in the night of the Russian winter. They come from minds driven mad by the horrors of mass starvation ordered and enforced as a policy by the communist state. They come from the starved skeletons worked to death or flogged to death in the freezing filth of subarctic labor camps. They come from children whose parents are suddenly inexplicably taken away from them, parents they will never see again. But one day the communist really hears those screams. He's going about his routine party tasks. He's lifting a dripping reel of microfilm from a developing tank. He is justifying to a communist faction in a trade union an extremely unwelcome decree of the Central Committee. He's receiving from a trusted superior an order to go to another country in a designated hotel at a designated hour to meet a man whose name you will never know, who will give him a package whose contents you will never learn. Suddenly the clothes around that communist 
of separating silence, and in that silence he hears screams. He hears them for the first time, for they do not merely reach his mind. They pierce beyond. They pierce to his soul. He says to himself, those are not the screams of a man in agony. They are the screams of a soul in agony. He hears them for the first time because a soul in extremity has communicated with that which alone can hear another human soul. In the end there persists in every man, however he may deny it, a scrap of soul. If the communist does not instantly stifle that scrap of soul, he is lost. If he admits it for a moment, he has admitted that there is something greater than reason, greater than the logic of the mind, of politics, of history, which alone justifies division. If the party senses his weakness, and the party is peculiarly cunning at sensing such weakness, it will humiliate him, degrade him, condemn him, expel him. If it can, it will destroy him, and the party will be right. For he has betrayed that which alone justifies his faith, the vision of Almighty Man. He is brushed against the only vision that has force against the vision of Almighty Mind. He stands before the fact of God. This magnificent passage in witness should give you some idea of the spiritual turmoil with which Chambers ended the years when he found no one to listen to his warnings or to believe his story as well as showing you the magnitude of the evil we fought in Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War, which you won because of the holiness of Pope John Paul the Great and the heroism and constancy and courage of President Ronald Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and all of the young men, our young men and women who died in those wars. The whole extraordinary story of the Hiss Chambers case is told by a historian named Alan Weinstein, who is a very rare example of a 20th century historian who believes in and respects the truth. He began his research convinced that Hiss was innocent, and ended it convinced that he was guilty and the Chambers was telling the truth. And despite the scorn of the intellectuals, Alan Weinstein dared to say so. His book remains the best on this amazing case. His title is Perjury, the Hiss Chambers Case. Almost as good as the book by English historian Alastair Cook, strikingly entitled A Generation on Trial, written and published at the time of the first perjury trial of Algiers. <coughs> Cook saw how the whole of Hisses and Chambers' generation had shared in their folly and treason and were now being called to account for it. After breaking in with the Communist Party, Chambers, a magnificent writer, as you have just heard, became a senior editor of Time magazine, which gave him the opportunity to comment brilliantly on current events at the time we were just discovering the malignity of the Communist enemy, which he knew so well. His essay on the disastrous significance of the, to the West of the Alta Big Three Conference of 1945, in which Alger is participated as an aide to Franklin Roosevelt, who was dying, and he needed AIDS very much, in which Roosevelt gave away half of Europe to Stalin, is a classic of journalism. His held the prestigious position of president of the Carnegie Fund for International Peace, for which, oddly, he had been recommended by John Foster Dulles, 
Eisenhower is strongly anti-communist Secretary of State. That position gave him increased credibility after Chambers had accused him. The East Chambers case began on August 2nd, 1948, when Chambers was subpoenaed to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee, then investigating the influence of communists in the U.S. government. Chambers knew that if he testified, he would reopen all the wounds of his past and cause many others besides himself to suffer. But he also knew that he had no choice. Quote, I believe that I was not meant to be spared from testifying. I sensed with a force greater than any fear or revulsion that it was for this that my whole life had been lived. Everything that made me peculiarly myself and different from all others qualified me to testify. My failure to do so, any attempt to evade that necessity would be a betrayal that would measure nothing less than the destruction of my own soul." Chambers saw himself as a witness, the title he gave to his autobiography, a Christian witness against the evils of communism, which insinuated itself into the highest councils of the American government and was dedicated to the destruction of everything moral and decent and healthy in America. On August 3rd, Chambers appeared before the committee testifying that he had been a communist secret agent. He gave a detailed description of his activities, naming those who had been in his party group, called the Ware Group, in Washington. As one of those names, one of the names he gave, everyone in the room gasped. Alger Hiss, one of Roosevelt's closest advisors in Washington, a pillar of the liberal establishment in Washington. All the other men Chambers' name had previously been identified or suspected to be communists, but no one had suspected his. His demanded to be heard by the committee, testifying on August 5th that he had never set eyes on Whittier Chambers. The committee, primarily under the urging of California Congressman Richard Nixon, questioned each man separately in executive session to determine who was lying. Chambers gave countless details of the way his and his wife had lived, the furnishings in their apartment, the cars they drove, their habits and hobbies. His was an ornithologist, and one of his greatest moments, Chambers said, was the sighting of a rare prothonotary warbler near the Potomac. When his was questioned the next day, not knowing what Chambers had said, he confirmed detail as the detail of Chambers' testimony. He mentioned his word-watching hobby. A committee member asked if he had ever seen any especially, if he had seen any especially rare specimens. Yes, he said, a prothonotary wobbler. <laughs> his realized that the committee was inclined to believe Chambers, and that, uh, that development not surprising. So he changed his strategy. Instead of denying that he'd ever known this man, he pretended to have known him once under the name of George Crosley to have sublet his apartment to him and loaned him a car, thus explaining Chambers' knowledge of his home and his habits. But that ploy didn't work either. At a public hearing on August 25th, he contradicted himself on, on several issues. As the committee continued its investigations, Hiss went on the attack, filing a $75,000 libel suit against Chambers. In the pre-trial examinations, 
Issa's lawyers made every effort to degrade Chambers and his wife with insults and accusations. But the lawyers outsmarted themselves. Casually, with no idea what he was getting into, Issa's lawyer asked Chambers to turn over any written material Issa had ever given him. Sure, there was none. Chambers reluctantly agreed. One of his duties in the Ware Group was to, had been to collect secret government documents, which Hiss then copied for the Soviet Union. When he fled the party, <coughs> Chambers saved the last of these documents in a sheaf of papers and rolls of microfilm. He turned the papers over to the court. The microfilm he decided to keep temporarily. Afraid that his home might be searched, Chambers hollowed out a pumpkin on his farm his farm and hid the film in it. Hence the documents came to be called the Pumpkin Papers. <laughs> he still did not tell the truth. Called before the, a New York grand jury investigating communism, he coolly denied under oath ever having passed secret documents and ever having been in a communist group with Whitaker Chambers. The grand jury believed Chambers and indicted Hiss on two counts of perjury. They could not indict him for treason because the statute of limitations on those actions had expired. At the perjury trial, his lawyer, Lloyd Paul Stryker, pulled out all the stops. In his opening arguments, he listed all of his achievements and all of the leading figures who trusted him, as we've seen that was a good many. He violently attacked Chambers, concluding with a vicious tirade, tirade Quote, in the warm southern countries, you know, where they have leprosy, sometimes you will hear on the streets among the lepers a man crying down the street, unclean, unclean, at the approach of a leper. I say the same to you at the approach of this moral leper. An American Catholic lawyer named Thomas Murphy was the prosecuting attorney and believed Chambers was telling the truth. He concentrated on the hard evidence that the documents had been typed on Hiss's own typewriter. The factual, de the factual details Chambers knew could not have come from the slight acquaintance Hiss had admitted with George Crosley, so-called George Crosley. The judge, Samuel Kaufman, allowed Hiss's lawyers practically everything they asked for, while constantly overruling Murphy's objections. The jury could not agree. They came back hung. Eight for convicting his, four for acquitting him. At the second perjury trial, Chambers was once again subject to personal attack. This time, his lawyers brought in the psychiatrist named Carl Binger, who testified that Chambers was a psychopath, though Binger had never in his life so much as spoken to Chambers. But Murphy calmly dismantled Binger's testimony by showing that everything he pointed to was evidence of Chambers' insanity could also be part of a perfectly sane behavior pattern. For example, Binger gave one of the, as one of the reasons for his diagnosis of Chambers that he kept looking at the ceiling. Murphy told Dr. Binger he had often looked, he had often looked at the ceiling during his, during his testimony. He even counted the number of times he had done so and asked the psychiatrist if that made him, him unbalanced and abnormal, <laughs> which of course he denied, though caught in his own trap. Another thing I didn't have in the text, but I should mention, Binger also said that Chambers was unable to form close personal attachments 
Chambers has been married for 22 years. <laughs> In his arguments, Murphy again focused on the evidence. The documents Chambers had kept including ha included handwritten memos from his, which his had to admit, quote, appear to be in my handwriting, end quote. In fact, they were in his handwriting. <laughs> Furthermore, his had transferred title to his, uh, title to his 1929 Ford to Chambers, though he claimed not to have known it, and the loan Chambers $400 to buy a 1937 Ford, both transactions being easily traceable through motor vehicle records. The next development was that the FBI actually located the typewriter, which had been used to type the pumpkin papers. It belonged to the wife of Alger Hiss. Hiss himself later admitted that the evidence of the typewriter was decisive. By the way, typewriters used at this time could be individually identified by the type, almost like fingerprints. Though Hiss still insisted that it had been somehow planted by Chambers, saying that he would always wonder how Chambers had obtained that typewriter. Is that this evidence convicted Hiss in his second trial for perjury, at which the jury voted unanimously for conviction. So legally the case was over, though many people would not accept the verdict, refusing to believe that so apparently charming and upright a young man could be guilty of perjury and espionage. Hiss was sentenced to five years in prison. He served. After his release, he was eventually readmitted to the bar and became again a practicing lawyer, steadfastly protesting his innocence all the while. But the now open Soviet records leave no doubt that he was guilty of espionage and perjury. Confirmation was found in the Soviet archives of an active Soviet espionage ring, just as Chambers had described it. In a March 30, 1945 cable from the Soviet intelligence representative in Washington to Moscow, mention was made of a Soviet agent codenamed Alex who has been identified as Alteris. Yes, never accepted the verdict or admitted his guilt. He lived past 90 and never confessed. Chambers said his last mission for the party was to hold out and not admit what he had done. In the end, it did, did them no good, because now, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the files on Soviet espionage are open to all researchers. To this day, his, his children still assert his innocence. But in fact, chambers like Danton had wrestled with the devil in the throat of hell to stop the revolution the devil was making, and like Danton, he played a decisive part in defeating it. Now, in the 21st century, the shadow of that revolution has ceased to fall across the world. Next month, I will describe the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. It'll be a long time before we rid ourselves of communism altogether. Communist China, Communist Cuba, and Communist Vietnam still stand. But even they are no longer trying to make world revolution. Chambers had the last word. When he finally confronted Hiss before the Un-American Activities Committee, he said in the face of Hiss's denial that he knew him, you were the best friend I had in the Communist Party. We were caught in a tragedy of history. In witness, Chambers explained superbly that tragedy of history, making it vividly real. The man who played the major part in exposing Hiss 
was then Congressman Richard Nixon of California, a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Nixon gained so much fame from this exposure of his that Dwight Eisenhower chose him as his running mate in 1952 as the Republican candidate for vice president. Nixon continued as vice president through Eisenhower's second term in 1960, surviving an attempt to remove him from the ticket in 1956, and then went on to become president himself in 1972, and to be the only American president to be driven from office in modern times, when he resigned to avoid impeachment in 1974. But Chambers always loved him, though he did not live to see his downfall. Nixon was a fellow Quaker, but he had, though he had none of Chambers' Christian profundity. But in fact, Chambers, like Danton, had wrestled with the devil in the throat of hell and rose to denounce the satanic evil of ultimate revolution, which is sheer destruction, and risked everything he had to do so, as Danton also risked all and in the end gave his life. Since, like all Christians, I believe in personal immortality, and I always have, by the way, even about my conversion, I like to imagine these two heroes meeting in the heaven, which I believe both won by their transcendent courage and comparing memories of what it is like to wrestle the devil. Along with that, I like to imagine the two women, both loved so much, who played so great a part of their conversion, meeting also in heaven, which they won by what they had done to their men, and describing to each other how each had saved her husband's soul. I can imagine Esther Chambers, a converted Jew, telling, uh, telling how she had drowned the evil in Whitaker by her surpassing love, which the devil cannot withstand, and Louise Jelly Danton telling her how she had made Danton's going to confession to a true and faithful priest a condition for marrying him. By doing what they did, both of these women made history as much as their husbands. Chambers had the last word in the final paragraph of his letter to his children, which begins witness, the most inspiring and memorable passage in the entire book. Quote, my children, when you were little, we used sometimes to go for walks in our pine woods. In the open fields, you would run along by yourselves, but you used instinctively to give me your hands as we entered those woods, where it was darker, lonelier, and in the stillness, our voices sounded loud and frightening. In this book, I'm again giving you my hands. I'm leading you, not through cool pine woods, but up and up a narrow defile between bare and steep rocks from which in shadow things uncoil and slither away. It will be dark, but in the end, if I have led you aright, you will make up three crosses, from two of which hang thieves. I would have brought you to Golgotha, the place of skulls. That is the meaning of the journey. Before, before you understand, I may not be there. My hands may have slipped from yours. It will not matter. But when you understand what you see, you will no longer be children. You will know that life is pain. Each of us hangs always from the cross of himself. And when you know that, this is true of every man, woman, and child on earth you will be wise." End quote. I maintain that no Christian spiritual writer anywhere has ever described conversion to faith in Christ 
the road to the Holy Cross better than that. That passage above all shows why Whitaker Chambers' Witness is the finest book written in the Ecclesiastes of the 20th century. And it shows that Jesus Christ can and will always triumph over every one of the evils of that century. And it also, in a single paragraph, sums up the history of our modern age. As he did it with downtown and the French Revolution in the 18th century, so he did, that's God now, so God did with Whitaker Chambers in the Communist Revolution of the 20th century. The mercy of our God reached out to reclaim a soul at the very bottom of the pit and brought him home, in the process frustrating and defeating the chief work of the devil in our time. For one whom the devil has used may sometimes become the devil's worst human enemy. That was and is the glory of Whitaker Chambers. He did not live to see the red hammer and sickle flag come fluttering down from over the Kremlin under the radiant stars on Christmas night, 1991. I saw it on television that year. He had been dead for 30 years. When Chambers from heaven saw God's victory finally won over the gigantic enemy he announced, which for all his new faith he had thought impossible, he knew that his life of martyrdom had not been lived in vain. I hope that you will now remember and honor Whitaker Chambers in the 21st century as his courage and sacrifice deserve, as hardly anyone did in the accursed 20th century.